0: Hope you're having a great Labor Day weekend. Some of you maybe spent some time yesterday watching some football, maybe today watching some football. I noticed a lot of talk about certain teams that were disrespected before, and now people were going to put some respect on their name, uh, the, the Colorado Uh, Buffalo's, Deion Sanders' uh, team, a bunch of other teams that maybe people thought were going to be great or people thought weren't going to be good. And people talked a lot about their name. I'm going to make a name for myself. We're going to make a name for ourselves as a team. That's actually language that's used in the Bible a lot. The, The people back when they were building the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 wanted to make a name for themselves. What are we talking about when we're talking about a name? My kids, my daughter really is way into plays and theater and movies, movie writing. She's she and her neighborhood friends are working on on some plays and some movie scripts that they want to do. And so then I hear her talking a lot about her her strong opinions about why I think Midsummer Night's Dream is way better than Romeo and Juliet. And we have some conversations about all of these things. But there's this question, you might remember very famously, that Romeo asks in Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet what is in a name? He says, wouldn't a rose smell just as sweet if it wasn't called a rose? But of course, Romeo already knows. That there's something in a name. That's the problem. A Montague and a Capulet can't be together, these star-crossed lovers. Because Juliet's name, it's not really about the word. It's about who she is. And there's a whole set of circumstances that go with who she is. We talk in the Bible about a name. We're talking about identity. We're talking about something, a word that represents a person. And the Bible tells us there's quite a bit in a name. And in fact, if we want to know God, we need to know his name. Let's talk this morning, study this morning, about this thing we've been singing about in these wonderful songs that Tommy selected. The great I am. Where does that come from? What's the idea of I am? What a strange name. I am. Just call me I am. Call me the great I Am. But that is who our God is. We're going to look at two different stories. One in Exodus 3 and one in John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles or your Bible apps, I'd encourage you to open up here in a moment to Exodus chapter 3. This is a story of the burning bush. This is a story where Moses... Having been humiliated and shamed, humbled from the lofty status that he was in as someone raised in the house of Pharaoh, he's been chased away, run away, and found himself as a humble shepherd in hiding in Midian on Mount Horeb. And that's when he comes to this this bush that won't burn up. It has fire, flames of fire, and yet it's never consumed. And scripture tells us in Exodus chapter 3 that the angel of Yahweh appeared to him there, the messenger of the Lord. And he's told, take off your sandals because this is holy ground. In some way, the Lord himself, his identity, his... His being, his holiness is represented here. This is a holy place. And he's going to have an encounter with Almighty God. And he's going to have a conversation with God. hard to think about having this kind of exchange with the one who made everything, who was before everything, who was beyond everything. But this is the God, as we'll see, who desires to draw close to us. And God says to Moses, I have been listening as my people called out to me. The Israelites had now been in Egypt for some time now. And they are enslaved in Egypt. And they're crying out in their oppression. And God says, I'm aware, I hear, and I'm going to send you to confront Pharaoh and set my people free. And Moses says what maybe many of us would say, his first question, who am I? Who am I to do this? Now, Moses thought he was the guy to do big things a while back, earlier in the story, whenever he tried to sort out This conflict between his brothers, and then he finds finds an Egyptian beating one of his brothers, an Israelite, and he kills him. And then he ran away. And now he's not thinking so highly of himself. Our thinking often about ourselves often needs to be calibrated, right? We can get so high thinking it's all on us, we're going to take care of everything, or so low that we think We can't even be useful to God in any way. And God reminds Moses, you're asking the wrong question. It's like like that, that graphic that comes up at Family Feud whenever they get the wrong answer. Wrong question. Don't ask, who are you? Ask, who am I? God says to him, he doesn't say who Moses is to do this, why he's chosen Moses. He says, I will be with you. The form of this word, I will be or I am, is going to become the theme in this whole passage. Who am I? I, God says, am with you. I will be with you. And that's all you need to know. Who are you? Servant of God here today. You are the one that God is with. Who are you to take on whatever task faces you? Who are you to go and talk to this person? Who are you to take on a project in the church? Who are you to deal with this challenge in your family? Who are you to face the difficulties you're facing that God has led you to? You're the one God is with. Who is God? That's the question. And that, in fact, is the next question Moses asks. He says okay well if I go to this people to the Israelites they don't really know me that well and who am I going to say sent me what's your name they, they might not know your name and here's the answer that God gives I am who I am Huh? Did somebody just say, huh? That's my name. I am who I am. What is that about? See, when you put this in context of this conversation, it makes you ask Moses' question, who am I, in an even broader scale. Not just who am I to do this job, but who am I? What am I? Well, you are a being. You are a human being who is conscious of your being. But there is one who is being itself, who is the source of all being. There is one who, only one, three persons, one God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who is pre is self-existent, and eternal. This could be stated, I am who I am or I am and will forever be who I am and forever will be. This is the, the tense of the verb is continuous. So it could be future tense or just present, but continuously. God has never not been. He will never not be. He is, as we read at the end of the Bible, in Revelation 1 verse 8 and again in chapter 21 he is the alpha and the omega the one who was who is who is to come in the in the Hindu religion there's you know they have a million deities all kinds of deities in Hinduism but there are these three big ones that you hear about a lot there's Brahma, who is the creator, they, they believe. And there's this, this one Vishnu, who is the one who preserves and sustains. And then there's, there's Shiva, the destroyer. So they have this triumvirate of a beginning. One that starts things and one that keeps things going and one that ends things. But see, God is... The beginning of everything that is. And the, the New Testament talks about how Jesus, in Colossians 1 and 2, holds things together. All things that are, are being, it's like he's holding the molecules of the universe together with his strength. Everything is not only created because of him, but it's still going. It's his power that keeps the rain coming and the sunshine, sun. Uh, sunshine sunning? The, the sun shining and everything that is happening, your breath within your lungs is because he is and chooses for it to be. And when he wants things to end and wants it to end in a particular way, it will end in the way that he has designed. Who is and who was and is to to come The beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega, the A, and the Z, and everything in between. And then he says, when you go to the people, just say, I am sent me. I am. And so this word, the Hebrew word, it's, it's like Ehiah. And it's a form you can hear maybe in it, the, the, re, the relation to Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew word, the, the name, the personal name of God. As he revealed himself to his covenant people, Yahweh. And Yahweh, it seems that Yahweh is the, is the third person form. Yahweh is, he is. God can say, I am. We say, who is He? He is. And so God says, say, ehia. say, I am sent me. And then he identifies himself as Yahweh. He says, I go to them and say that the Lord, Yahweh, He is the God of Of your fathers the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob has sent you and he has heard your call and he cares about you and he will deliver you it's interesting this is not the beginning of the use of this name seems like a beginning and it is a new beginning but this name Yahweh is used over a hundred times in the book of Genesis In fact, if you look at Genesis 28, verse 13, it's almost the same thing that that he says to Moses here. The Lord, the God of our fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac. When he comes to Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel later. At the place where he, with his pillow of stone, as we sing, where he saw that vision. At Bethel, of the the staircase up and down from heaven with angels ascending and descending. He said, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, the God of your fathers. He introduced himself. Again and again to his people. In fact, all the way back in Genesis 2, verse 4, we see Yahweh used. And we see in Genesis 4, chapter 4, remember it says that uh, Seth had the son Enoch. and And that's the time that people began calling on the name of Yahweh. Genesis 4. So this isn't the beginning of this. But here's what's interesting. Throughout the book of Exodus, it has not been used God has not been called Yahweh. Through this period of the people in Egypt, through the period of their enslavement, as they're calling out, as they're suffering, as all of these things are happening, we don't see the name Yahweh used until you get to the burning bush. It's as if the, the writer, and this is the kind of thing that, that the inspired writers often do, it's as if the inspired writer is telling us They have forgotten the name of the Lord. They were not in the same relationship that they once were with God. In chapter 1 of Exodus, we read about a Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, but maybe this people doesn't know God as well as they once did. Because to know the name of the Lord is not just about knowing a word. There's a lot of people that know what Yahweh means and can give you its etymology and a dictionary definition that do not know the Lord. But to know him as he discloses himself to us, as he reveals himself and says, I want you to know me and I want to know you. That takes a particular kind of desire, of trust, of commitment, of devotion, and of coming to understand him as He reveals himself in His word. But we have to ask: Have we forgotten the name? Have you forgotten the name? Do you know the name of the Lord? That is, do you know this Lord that I'm talking about? Let's take a closer look at the name itself. And this will be a little bit of a a brief dive into this word. So there's these four Hebrew characters together. The Hebrew alphabet is all consonants. They have diacritical markings that modern Hebrew has to tell us vowel sounds. But traditionally, it's just consonants. And something interesting happened along the way through history from this time that Moses is encountering the Lord at the bush until the time of Jesus. And after that, what happened is the Jews stopped saying the name of the Lord. Not because they forgot it but because they wanted to show a special kind of reverence for it. And so the pronunciation wasn't, was, was a little bit lost. And so what they would do is, as they're reading through their Hebrew Bibles, and they come to this word, Yahweh, they would, they would see this word, and they would replace it with the Hebrew word for Lord. Not for Lord like God, but Lord like, most often used to describe someone that was the master of a servant or something like that, and it's the word Adonai. Sometimes it's used to describe God, but it's often used just for people, lowercase L, Lord. But the the Jews would say, when they got to Yahweh, they would say Adonai, which means Lord. And over time, in the Middle Ages, people were, Christians were thinking about how to pronounce this. And they took a Latinized version of Yahweh, of these four letters, and the vowel sounds from Adonai, and they made a new word, Jehovah. And that became a word that was used in, play, in this, these spots where Yahweh was used. In modern Bibles, today in English, what you typically see, and if you've got your Bible open here, you can look at Exodus 3 there in, for instance, verse 15, where it says, say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, Lord is a little bit different typesetting, right? You see that? It's in small caps. And the reason for that is to let you know Following this practice of using Adonai, but setting it apart, like there was these four letters. Sometimes it's called the Tetragrammaton, which is a big word you can use at parties if you're really nerdy like me. <laughs> tetragrammaton, meaning these four letters, this word, the four letters, the sacred name with these four Hebrew characters. But they it, it, they took this four these four letters and put them in small caps to let us know this is. Yahweh, whenever you see it there, that's Yahweh. And then when you see it spelled like this, then it would just be normal Adonai. And then whenever the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, it's called the Septuagint, that translation which was made before Jesus' time. This passage in, in Exodus 3, they used this phrase in Greek, ego a me, which means I am. That becomes important as we get to the next part of our story, because the New Testament is written in Greek. So now look with me at John chapter 6. This is a story and, and a special phrase in the story that is in all four Gospels, this story of Jesus coming to the disciples, whenever there is this storm on the way. John chapter 6, verses 16 to 20, verses 17 to 18 say, say, It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. They're feeling nervous. They're feeling, it says in the verse before, they're feeling frightened. And Jesus is the one person that they would turn to, isn't there in the boat. But then he comes, as he walks over to them, he says, It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, this is a great translation of this, probably. But in the context of the rest of the book, we start to see that it is I has a little more meaning than maybe the disciples realized at that moment. It is I is, in the, in the New Testament here, in the Greek, ego eimi. It is I, he says, I am. Don't be afraid. This is, the. if, if you're wondering... How how do we know that this is meant to have this greater significance? Well, this word is used over and over again in the book of John as he says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the door of the sheep. He says these different phrases seven different times. He uses these I am statements to describe himself. But maybe out of all of these names and descriptions, the best is just I am. And if you're still wondering, does this really mean he's saying he's Yahweh? Well, the Jews understood it perfectly. A couple chapters later in John 8, verses 58 and 59, when Jesus says, Before Abraham was, I am. Am. And they wanted to stone him. So is our God willing? You ever hear this phrase, willing and able? You know, I'm willing and able. If you, need, if you need someone to help you move, I'm willing and able. Somebody might be willing, but, you know, I can't. I, I wish I could help, but I can't. Or someone might be, might be the opposite. And I think we sometimes can get stuck on one side or the other of this, with God. Maybe we think, of course God is able to help. He's God. But I don't know if he really cares about all the stuff that's going on with me. Or I don't know if he actually gets involved in all this stuff of life anymore. I mean, that was stuff he did back in Bible times. Or how much does he really get concerned about The tears I shed or the situation I'm going through at school or at work or in my family. But if you're paying attention to what happened there and what he said back in Exodus, you see God saying, I am willing. I am the one that sees your struggle. I am the one that hears my people's cry. Their blood is calling out to me from the ground. I am the one who will deliver my people. And I am the one who made everything that is. And it's only existing. Pharaoh exists because I'm letting him. Everything exists because I decided it will be. Our God is able to help and our God is willing to help. When we are in need, so think about your task. What are the things in your life, that, the, the things that you know God has, has a desire for you to step up and do, do the work? Maybe there's a task that seems like a Pharaoh in your life that you have to go and face. Maybe maybe it's something with your kids or your grandkids. Maybe it's something, a conversation that you have coming. Maybe there's a struggle in your marriage that you're working through, but you know that you are called to be a particular kind of person in this marriage. Whatever it is, what do you have before you? In your task, your great task, to glorify God, to fear him and keep his commandments, to love him with all your heart and your soul and your might, to, to glorify, bring glory to him in everything you do. And you might ask, who am I? And he says, I will be with you. Think about your storm. The darkness and the seas that creeped around the disciples were overwhelming to them. Maybe there's some sickness that is overwhelming to you. Maybe there's some difficulty. But remember, the one who came to the boat and they were immediately on dry land is in the boat with you if you're his servant. I am, Jesus says, don't be afraid. So he invites you into a close covenant relationship. His covenant people know his covenant name, Yahweh. He says, know my name. Psalm chapter 91, verse 14 says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. To know his name, this is a parallel, is another form of saying he holds fast to me know his name know who God is and determine that you will be in relationship with him and trust in his name in Psalm 20 verse 7 <laughs> in Psalm 20 verse 7 we read that some trust in chariots but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And and he says to call on his name. In Joel chapter 2 we read that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the same language that's used in Acts 22 whenever Paul was told by Ananias in verse 16, "Why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? You believe in the Lord you believe he is the Christ, the Son of God. You know he died and rose. You see it, though, though he was blind. You see it. So be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The Lord saves those who call out to him. And the way we call out to him in this act of salvation is in the act of going down into the waters of baptism. As James did not long ago. As those here who are following the Lord did. We went down into the water calling on the Lord and rose up a new person forgiven of our sins.